G'day, I'm Cam Buchanan from Mount Gambier, Australia, and this is Devotions in the Deep End. Grab a coffee, open your Bible to Luke chapter 10, and we'll get started in just a few moments. Let's read from verses 17 to 23. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. In the last episode, we left this passage off at just the commissioning part. 72 followers of Jesus have been sent ahead of his soon-to-be final approach to Jerusalem. Across a span of around 18 months to two years, there have been two key sending events. And these have had enough similarities to set a helpful pattern and offer some principles, yet distinct enough to accomplish specific aims in and of themselves. In particular, they both have significantly different target audiences. I indicated in the last episode that something emerges when empowered believers carry out what they are missionally commissioned to do. And that's what we see in this part of the narrative. Over the years, I've met many church people whose faith continually appears to be, well, dry and dull and even a bit cynical. But I also see others who are just alive in God. Some are just crazy firebrands who can't help but tell God's story far and wide. These are the ones who walk into your local church on Sunday mornings with eyes wide in wonder. And there is tangible, unabandoned thankfulness coming out of every pore of their being. They have this crazily consistent and even fervent confidence in God seemingly all the time. They have an experiential knowledge of Jesus that is burning in them, and their faces often have this involuntary look that says, I know something about God that, well, you don't. Crowd-dwelling Christians usually find these people to be a bit over the top. Religious people don't understand them and might even be offended or even repelled by them. Incredibly, Non-Christians and young believers want what they have. I would suggest that the returning 72, going by the report they bring in this passage, would be those sorts of people in your local church. You see, here's part of the end game of being a disciple, at least for this side of eternity anyway. You start out as a part of the crowd who hears about Jesus. You like what he stands for and you like what he says. You are drawn to him and you're not even sure you know why, but you constantly want to be around him. 
But then he makes that challenging yet inviting call that is present in Luke chapter 9. Don't just hang around me. Follow me. Make yourself an adherent of my teaching and begin to imitate me. It comes at a cost, but the cost will be totally worth it. I promise. Those that lose their life will find it again in me. If you do that, he takes us to chapter 10 when he then says, Go, put yourself out there and proclaim me. And if you do, you'll see something you never thought you would. That's what is happening when the 72 return in our passage. They counted, they followed, they went, and then they saw. They saw the authority of Jesus working through them. They saw the forces of darkness being overcome. They saw sickness and evil being cast away at their word. And when they return and express this to Jesus, he endorses that by stating that he saw Satan fall and that he will continually be under their feet. This fall was always going to happen, by the way, and the language used by Jesus offers nods to a couple of Old Testament passages that are worth noting here. Isaiah chapter 14 speaks about Israel being freed from the clutches of ancient Babylon. At the time it was spoken, Judah had not yet been taken captive, but this event and their subsequent release was being pointed to anyway. From that time onward, Babylon became a metaphor for the powers of the world that sought to assimilate the people of God into its structures instead of that people being the salt and light they should be. In the New Testament, the metaphor of Babylon was associated with ancient Rome. With this in mind, consider Isaiah chapter 14, verses 3 to 15. On the day the Lord gives you relief from your suffering and turmoil and from the harsh labor forced on you, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has come to an end. How his fury has ended. The Lord has broken the rod of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, which in anger struck down peoples with unceasing blows and in fury subdued nations with relentless aggression. All the lands are at rest and at peace. They break into singing. Even the junipers and the cedars of Lebanon gloat over you and say, Now that you have been laid low, no one comes to cut us down. The realm of the dead below is all astir to meet you at your coming. It rouses the spirits of the departed to greet you. All those who were leaders in the world, it makes them rise from their thrones. All those who were kings over the nations. They will all respond. They will say to you, You also have become weak as we are. You have become like us. All your pomp has been brought down to the grave, along with the noise of your harps. Maggots are spread out beneath you, and worms cover you. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Not only would the kings like those in Babylon fall as quickly as they tried to ascend to godlike heights, but eventually so would the source of their pursuits, Satan himself. And the commissioned church would play a role in this. The promise about trampling snakes is not permission to pick up cobras and play with them. It's actually a reference to the statements of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, a messianic promise God made to the tempting serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. 
With all that said, Jesus reminds the returning disciples that they were welcome to rejoice at what the Lord did through them. The powers of darkness did in fact fall and Jesus validates their ministry at this time. But they should do so in a correct mindset. Sure, demonic forces submitted to their ministry, but this was a perk, not the end game. The bigger takeaway from their experience is that the Father knows them. They are actually set apart and known to God. The power they have is simply God's endorsement of them. But the endorsement has eternal value and they must keep their minds in eternal perspective at the same time as living commissioned in the world around them. Then we read this. As joyful as the returning disciples appear to be, it appears Jesus is even more so. Jesus is described as both full of joy, his humanity coming out in a big way here, and full of the Holy Spirit as well. If we put this a little differently, the whole Trinity is experiencing joy even as the disciples are joyful in their commissioning. Think about that. The disciples return from knowingly entering hostile territory and are joyful at their experience upon return. What other way could the Trinity feel with that? Jesus' joy at this time is because they've been able to see what he wanted them to see in this experience. He wanted them to see the hostility before them, but he also wanted them to see God at work in that space for themselves. He wanted them to be able to both proclaim and demonstrate the power of God's kingdom that was now near through Christ. The cross was looming awfully close at this time, and the disciples needed to be able to carry on what Jesus started. When he saw that this was possible and that the disciples were knowing God's power firsthand, his joy was palpable. With these 72 disciples, it was no longer second or third hand information. It wasn't reports of reports or testimonies of testimonies or anecdotal evidence fueling their faith. It was God revealing things directly to them because Jesus had shown them how to know the source. Jesus goes on to say that even prophets and godly kings in Israel's past had anticipated things but hadn't seen or heard God like they were. Yet simple Galilean followers of Jesus who counted the cost did. At this part of the narrative, we see that the tough call of followership certainly has a cost, and it is all that we are. But the bargain price of everything is totally worth it because God holds nothing back from us in return. With all this in mind, I have a challenging question to present to you, one that needs more than a moment of your time at the end of a sermon at church or the end of a devotional piece like this. The question is this, do you know God like the 72 clearly did? Do you know the influence, the presence, the voice, the power of the Father? Do you know when the authority of Jesus is working through you in what you say and do? Are you walking in such a way that the powers of darkness remain under your feet? Friends, that position before God is not reserved for the super spiritual person on the front row of your church meeting, or for those at the more charismatic style church down the road. In fact, charismatic gifts as we know them now weren't even in effect yet, yet the whole trinity was clearly involved. This power is for any believer who counts the cost and follows. It gives a fresh sense of confidence in who you are in Christ. It puts a look on your face that says, I know something that you don't, and people want to know what that is. But only you can find this as you seek the Lord for yourself. Jesus didn't spoon-feed these disciples. They learned to pick up a fork for themselves. And the same can be said for disciples today as well. I cannot somehow pronounce this closely known power and authority upon you. No preacher can. I can only show you scripturally how it occurs through the model Jesus appears to give us here. 
The model kind of looks like this. First, count the cost and follow. Become an imitating disciple. Then, proclaim his kingdom as a member of his commissioned people. Walk in his authority, know his power, know his presence in your life. And then the results will speak for themselves because everybody will want what you have. Thanks for tuning in. To stay in touch, like our Devotions in the Deep End Facebook page and subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, be sure to put up a rating and even a comment if your platform allows for it as this will help others know what to expect. I look forward to catching up next time.